Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today we're going to be talking with bikepack racer Neil Belchenko. Neil holds the record for both the Colorado Trail Race and the Arizona Trail 750, and he's a contributor at bikepacking.com. Neil recently won the Iditarod 350 bikepacking race in Alaska, and he's hosting the second annual bikepacking summit in Gunnison, Colorado this September. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. So this was your second year competing in the Iditarod 350. Were there things that you learned uh, last year that you were able to carry over into this year's win? Yeah, so I've kind of been chatting with a bunch of people about this. And really, it's so huge to have at least one finish under your belt. There's just little things along the route that you kind of, you know, you gain knowledge of along the way. And even just following somebody that's done the route in the past is huge. So last year, you know, we started off the race. There was like six six racers in the lead pack. And basically all I was doing was just kind of observing what they do, you know. A lot of a lot of time wasted is in checkpoints. And so kind of figuring out, you know, the best the best kind of situation when you get into a checkpoint, you you take off your clothes, you take off your boots, you put it next to the fire. You eat food right away, you hydrate, you fill up your camelback. All of these things, you know, I learned just by observing what other racers were doing. And so this year, coming back into the race, I was like, all right, well, what can I do to kind of save those those minutes and seconds in the checkpoints? And, you know, a lot of a lot of things that the guys were doing were you know, they were they were doing it swiftly in the checkpoints, but I think I, I, I knew I could do things a little bit faster. And so that was like a big goal of mine to to just kind of make those checkpoint stops a little bit quicker because really, you know, you can totally get sucked into being in the warmth and being next to a fire and having a cup of coffee in your hand and, and drinking a Coke or something like that. So that was that was a huge, huge lesson that I learned from last year into this year. And then obviously, you know, just knowing the route, knowing what's ahead of you. Sometimes that is, you know, it mentally difficult because you're like, wow, I've got so much ahead of me still. <laughs> but at the same time, you're like, oh, I recognize, you know, I recognize that rock or I recognize that tree or something like that. And you're like, mm-hmm. all right, I'm, I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer. Like I know that I'm making progress. And so that's super, super helpful. Yeah, that's great. Well, I know you're a really competitive person. So when you signed up for the race last year, did you go into it thinking, I'm just, I'm just here to like check out the race and next year I'm going to really go for it and try to win? Or did you show up that first year kind of hoping that maybe you would win? No. And, and that's a really good point. So last year, yeah, I definitely went into the race just wanting to finish. And that's my goal for basically all of these races, just finish, you know, you're up in Alaska, you're, uh, you spend a lot of money to get up there. If you need to get rescued, it's going to be super expensive. So take it slow or rather slow and just 
you know, focus on the end goal, which is McGrath, which is the finish for us. And so, yeah. Yeah. So coming into it this year, I had definitely a different mindset. I wanted to, I wanted to up the game a little bit. I wanted to, you know, push myself a little bit, a little bit harder. You know, you do everything you can, whether it's, you know, in the checkpoints or, you know, try to go a little bit faster on the trail or something like that. But yeah, I, I guess the, the, the end goal for me this year was to definitely just make things a little bit swifter. And I think it ended up working out pretty well. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you say too about how the checkpoints are so critical, you know, speeding that up. It reminds me a lot. I mean, I don't know a lot about racing triathlons, but I feel like I've heard triathletes say sort of the same thing that it's all about your transitions and making that quick and, you know, as efficient as possible. And sounds like maybe that's one of the keys for at least for bikepacking races like the Iditarod. Yeah. And, and I would say, especially bike pack races on the snow, winter ultras, um, fat bike races, just because, you know, you're outside. It's, I think we started this year and it was, it was like 15 degrees. So it wasn't like super, super cold, but it was still chilly and you're out there and Mm -hmm. you know, the condensation from your, your breath, like gets on your Jersey and on your head and you still sweat. And so, um, needing to dry those layers off is super, super important. But once you're inside those checkpoints, it's so comfortable. It's warm. It's nice. You're next to a fire. You really do, you know, you really do get sucked in. And a lot of people, you know, kind of in the middle of the pack or the back of the pack, they're like, they do get sucked in. They'll stay there for a night or they'll be like, wow, I don't know if I want to go on, you know, because they've been there for two, three, four hours. And they're like, this is, this is nice. This is normal to me, you know? So, so really just trying to get out of there as soon as possible is, is, is really important. And I guess like a good example is the first checkpoint is about, I think it's like 50 miles in or 60 miles in. And I went in, just took my boots off because my boots have studs on the bottom. And so Mm -hmm. obviously they don't want you to walk around with studs on the bottom, but you take the boots off, take the socks off. I went in, grabbed a cup of soup, had a Coke, um, filled up my water and was in and out in like 20, 30 minutes. Wow. And then, yeah, the second checkpoint, uh, which is I think 50 miles beyond that or 60 miles beyond that, Skwetna, that was a little bit longer because there was a nice fire there. I was a little bit, you know, a little bit more wet. The jersey was a little wet. The 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 buff needed to be replaced. So I, I went in, dropped all my, um, you know, all my layers, took most of them off, down to my bibs, dried everything off, and then got, you know, got some food, got fed, filled up my camelback, and then was in and out. And I think like maybe an hour. So, and compared to last year, I actually slept in that second aid station. And this year I knew like what I wanted to do is push on to the third checkpoint before I slept. And obviously it's super weather dependent. It could have been snowing really hard and I would have, I would have been like hours and hours behind my time. Right. But it was only snowing a little bit. And my splits from last year to this year were actually a little bit slower just because I think we had a little bit softer conditions, but overall they're pretty similar. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like to be a world-class bike pack racer, there are a couple of things you need. One, you need willpower. You need the willpower to like go into one of those checkpoints and drag yourself out as quickly as possible and not get sucked into just sitting there and being comfortable. And then the other is dedication. I mean, for you to, you know, this wasn't, it's not like you just show up for a race, you know, hoping to win. Like this is years in the making oftentimes where 
you go out, you know, I mean, it takes a lot of planning just to get to the finish line the first time, but once you're there, that's not even, that's not even the real race. The real race is going to be the next year or the year after that. Once you really have done your research and your planning and all that. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And that's, that's exactly what this race was. You know, it was basically two years in the making, you know, Arizona trail race. When I've done that, I did the Arizona trail race 300 before I ever did the Arizona trail 750. And really like a lot of people just jump into, you know, for example, the tour divide. And that was like, obviously a, a huge goal of mine when, when I did the tour divide, but I knew that I couldn't just jump into it. I had to, had to train my body. I had to train mentally and just, just prepare myself for these long days in the saddle. And, and it's not, it's not something you can just do overnight. A lot of people, you know, can, can do it a little bit easier and quicker, but others, you know, it's, it takes a ton of time. And like I said, the end goal is to finish all these races. So knowing that I'm, you know, I'm mentally and physically prepared before I go into them is super important. And so when I do a new race or when I do any race, really any bikepacking race, I have to be prepared, not only um, physically, but I, I have to be right in my head. Right. Yeah, I'm sure that's a huge part of it. Well, you mentioned the Arizona Trail race and that you won that one on was that your second attempt on that race as well? So, I did the the Arizona Trail race 300. That was like my first bikepacking race. I think it was in 2013, maybe 2012. And then I did it I think 2 years later and I raced the 300 and I raced I raced it to kind of like win it slash do as, as best as I could. I was racing two really super strong athletes in Kurt Refsnyder. And then the 750 came, I think the following year. And my goal really wasn't to like break the record, but the goal was to win it. Um, I, I really wanted to push myself and see how, how, you know, how I could do, but I didn't, I hadn't ridden any of the, the, um, the course after that 300 mile course. Right. So I really had no idea what to expect, but that was kind of like a blessing because I didn't know what to expect. And I just went as hard as I could, you know, and you wrote it like it was the 300 and, but for 750 miles. Yeah. And at the end of the race, I was definitely sleeping a little bit more. So (laughs) I want to, I wanted to actually go back and do that race this year, but I just, uh, I don't have enough time for work. Yeah. Well, that was, that was the sort of the question that was, leading up to, which is, do you have a strategy? Like if you, if you do a race like this, like the Iditarod 350 and you win it or the Arizona 750 where you set the course record, I mean, do you have desire to go back and do those races again or, you know, keep doing them year after year? Or do you like sort of trying new ones and kind of bagging them as you go? Yeah, that's a really good question. There's a little piece of me that really wants to go back to the courses that I've had held records at, because I think, I think there's, there's always room for improvement and records are, are made to be broken. So eventually they will be, you know, (laughs) right. And so, yeah, I definitely want to go back to the Arizona trail race because now I know that that additional 400 miles and then, you know, Colorado trail race, that's a tough one because I, I laid it all on the line from Denver to Durango to set that record. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't have any intention on going back to do that direction, Mm -hmm. but I, unless the record gets broken and, and then maybe I would need to go back and do it. But the Denver to Durango or the Durango to Denver segment, I'd like to go and, uh, and, and race that route again. 
just just because you know there's room for improvement and i i think there's at least in room for, for improvement in that direction so yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense that some races yeah you feel like you could have done better and then other times you put it like you said you put it all out there and you know that's that's the best you can do and until you can unlock some other secret or you know figure something else out like there's really no need to go back and do it the one thing i will say to give you some encouragement is we talked to eddie o'day on the podcast uh several months ago and uh in doing the research we found that he holds three bikepacking course records uh on uh, one of the bikepacking websites they keep track of that and as we mentioned at the top of this show you hold two so if you could get one more, you could tie the record for the most. Ah, yeah. Okay. Very good. And if you get a, another one, then you will be the one with the most records. So maybe that's something to shoot for. Well, yeah, that's, that is something to shoot for. I, I definitely want to actually go out and do the, uh, the trans North Georgia. And I think I'm on the roster this year. I just need to figure out the time off. So I, I, uh, that's on the list. And I know Eddie holds that record. Right. Yeah. Well, you only need to take off a couple of days because I think that's what the record is. Right, right. Yep, exactly. Cool. So getting back to the Iditarod, you know, obviously that's a race. It's in Alaska. And because it's a race, you're really focused on staying ahead of the competition for a lot of it, I'm sure. But are there times when you're like out there alone in the wilderness and do you ever get like worried or scared or anything like that? Or, or are you just just all race mode the whole time? It's it's really interesting out there. You go through peaks and valleys, and a lot of those can be avoided by, or a lot of those, you know, those valleys, those down moments can be avoided by chatting with somebody. And so this year's race, I basically was with JP DeBerry, who many of you know, super strong ultra endurance athlete. Yeah. And I was with him for essentially the first 110, 120 miles. Nice. And then... Um, he was doing the thousand mile version. So he ended up sleeping in Squetna where the 350 is more of like a sprint, you know, you go all out. Right. And so I, after, after I split up with him, I rode alone for the rest of the, the race. And there was, you know, checkpoint three, which is called Finger Lake Lodge. And I got there and I started talking to some folks and I was like, man, I could really, you know, I could use a, a riding partner. I'd love to chat with somebody. There's this guy, Clinton Hodges, who uh, ended up actually taking second in the 300 race. He was behind me. And uh, I was like, man, I could, I could chat with Clinton. You know, it'd be, it'd be nice. But, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, there's no way that I was going to wait up for him. Right. And that's that's kind of the, the interesting dynamic there. And then, you know, another experience on the trail this year, a scary one was going over Rainy, Rainy Pass. And if people don't understand, like, the Iditarod Trail, it's basically a swamp in the summer. <laughs> and so you can't really travel it at all in the summer. Okay. But in the winter, it's just like kind of a frozen packed down trail. And we really rely on the Iditarod sled dog race because those guys go out and kind of groom the trail and kind of make it actually passable, you know, make water bridges and, and ice bridges and stuff like that for the, for the dog sled teams. So they go out, you know, a couple weeks in advance and kind of scout the trail and fix it. And especially this section in rainy pass, there's a lot that needs to be done because it's, it actually goes through the Alaska range and it goes over mountains. And so this year, what happened was, you know, the trail was pretty darn good until, until I got to that point, rainy pass area or just before the pass. 
uh, and the wind started picking up and the, and the, it started snowing and essentially, you know, it was like a full on blizzard up there and you wouldn't even be able to see my tracks like probably 10 minutes after I went through, through because it was just like windy and a ton of snow falling. Eventually, you know, I made it to the top, but you know, I was going through like avalanche terrain and terrain traps and it was just like, kind of like a little scary for me. It was definitely, definitely a moment where I was just like, a little. yeah, I was like, you know, this is not, not smart, you know? And so, you know, you, you deal with some of those, those obstacles and those mental hurdles along the way. Yeah. That seems stressful. I mean, you're weighing, you're constantly weighing like safety and winning a race, but at the end of the day, you know, it's just a race. It's just and, a race. Exactly. And it's your life. It is my life. Yeah. So that was, that was definitely probably one of the most scariest moments I've ever had in a race. And who knows, like, I don't even know if it was, if the avalanche danger was high, it was dark, you know, I was just, <laughs> I was, I was walking my bike up rainy pass. Um, like, you know, sometimes like thigh deep snow. Cause I fell off the trail. Wow. Yeah. So it was just, it was, there was, there was a lot of vari- variability in the trail this year and it was just, yeah, it was, it was something else. Yeah. Do you carry like an avalanche beacon with you? Is that required gear? No, no, but now I'm, now I definitely consider it just if I did get stuck in an avalanche and just to find me, you know, uh, yeah. cause it, you know, if you're out, out there on uh, alone, um, there's really not much you can do, you know, and I, a few years back, there was a, a group of guys that actually, they dealt with a, a lot more snow and they were actually, they were like triggering avalanches and stuff like that. And they turned around oh. and this year, like I was looking like I've, I've taken my avalanche level one course. Like I'm, I'm privy to the whole avalanche scene and I know, you know, what to look for and stuff like that. And I wasn't getting any signs of instability or anything like that. I just knew I was in a terrain trap and it was dark. Right. The darkness seems like that that makes it harder to assess the situation. Exactly. So, yeah, so that was scary, but uh, we made it. And, you know, there's a lot to be said about being up front. You know, you you definitely go a little bit faster. You're not chasing anybody, but that you're basically chasing the finish line. Yeah. So that that was definitely a huge motivator to just keep pushing. Yeah. What what were like the longest stretches where you would go between, you know, houses or like where you'd at least be near help should you need it? Yeah. I, I, so after Rainy Pass, there's this uh, little checkpoint called Roan and it's um, it's got like a little airstrip and it's uh, got a national forest cabin. And then for us, there's like a little stand up tent and it could probably hold, I don't know, anywhere from 10 to 15 people. Hmm. Um, so that's our little checkpoint. Is it manned or it's just like a shelter in case you need it? It is. Yeah. There was one person there and he was sleeping when I got there. I got there at like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning. And this was just on the other side of the Alaskan Ranch, just on the other side of Rainy Pass. And, you know, when I got there, he was, he was sleeping and I was like, Hey, what's up, Adrian? Cause I knew him from last year. Super, super nice guy. And he's like, uh, he was surprised to see me and, he, uh, he, you know, he cooked me up some, some brats cause it, Ooh, brats. You know, every, every, yeah, every, uh, every checkpoint gets like a different meal and we got brats and soup for that one. But you know, the tent was super cold. The fire wasn't really on. I, <laughs> I actually ended up keeping my boots on because I was like, Oh man, this is just, well, it's just a tent. You don't have to worry about the floor there. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. And so I ended up sleeping there for a little bit, but after Roan, there's a huge stretch. It's about a 70 mile stretch 
with no aid stations. 70, actually, it's probably closer to 80, 75, 80. Oh, wow. From Rhone to Nikolai. And the thing is, you know, you could get that done. And if you're doing 10 miles an hour, you can get that done in seven, eight hours. Mm -hmm. But if you're going slow, if if it's poor conditions, it's going to take you a while. It could take you a day. Uh, and that's basically what ended up happening with me on this on this stretch. I uh, roan at like six o'clock and six a.m. and I got out of like it's kind of protected by trees and and then you get to this area called the farewell burn and it's this old burn area that's completely exposed. It's like a big swamp, huh. frozen swamp in the winter. And uh, and the wind was whipping. That storm that hit Rainy Pass just did a number to the trail. There was no trail really. There was you know, just, it was blown in. Yeah. So it was completely, you know, I couldn't ride it, but then, you know, when I got into like a short section of trees, I could ride that. So that was kind of, you know, that was kind of nice to have, but then I would get back out on to the swamp again and it would be totally windblown and I couldn't ride it. So I was basically walking, you know, anywhere from one mile an hour to probably zero, you know, just cause I, cause my, my bike was basically getting stuck in the snow and I had to like pull it out. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't just, um, couldn't just roll and walk next to it because the front tire would dip down into deep snow. And so I had to like lift the front tire up and like kind of just basically like pull up on my handlebars and just drag my rear wheel. Ugh. So I did that for 20 hours on and off until I got to Nikolai and I was basically like out of, out of food. Like I, I did not anticipate going that slow in that section. And I, I got to, yeah. I got to, uh, Nikolai, I think at like 2 AM. So yeah, that was, that was definitely the longest stretch, but the upside is, you know, Nikolai, it's, it's a small community in, uh, interior Alaska. It was a warm checkpoint and that's the last checkpoint of the race before you get to McGrath and it's, there's only 50 miles or so after Nikolai to McGrath. So. Oh, nice. I also knew that I had a decent lead at that point. Cause there's like no cell service out there. There's, there's no Wi-Fi in, uh, at Rhone. So I had no idea where anybody was, but once I got to Nikolai, they showed me the tracker and they told me that I had a pretty decent lead. So I ended up taking a nap there and, and then pushed on to the finish. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, but that felt great. So this might be a dumb question, but is the course marked at all or are you relying on GPS to keep you on track? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. So like I said, you know, the Editorad, it's a swamp. It's a frozen swamp. So a lot of times from year to year, the course kind of changes. There's no real way. And typically, you know, it's it's a way for, for locals to get, you know, from A to B. And so there's really only one route in the winter. And per the course rules, there's, um, you can actually take any way as long as you travel through certain checkpoints, as long as you travel through Rhone, as long as you travel through Nikolai, but really realistically, there's only one way to go. And so typically it follows, you know, like a, a somewhat of a trail, like some cut trees, mm-hmm. you know, and so there's like reflectors on the trail, but then when you're going over a lake or something like that, you just kind of, you kind of just have to look at the reflectors across the lake, you know, the frozen lake. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of eyeball where you're heading and try to get there. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's actually, it's kind of hard to navigate. Like sometimes you're like, well, do I go this way? And then I look at my, I do have a GPS. I look at the GPS and, um, and 
see if it kind of adds up if it's like all right yeah i think the trail's over here um and you know i've gotten lost like i've this year i went off route for like a mile and a half because there was some random trail that some dude made and then it looped it it literally looped back like a you know just a loop yeah and i was like oh great so i'm just gonna ride this back and then i like zoomed into my gps and sure enough i was completely off trail and then there's one circumstance on the trail where you can it's kind of a, a shortcut and this year actually everybody took it but last year it was kind of half but in between Nikolai and McGrath there's a route called the overland route and it goes left mm-hmm. and then there's a route that stays on the river that meanders the overland route basically kind of cuts those meanders and it just goes straight to McGrath uh-huh. whereas the river meanders and obviously you know a meandering river it takes up more mileage than a straight line right but is it maybe less elevation or something? Is it just flat compared to going overland? It's it's very little. You know, the the Meandering River has a tiny less elevation, but it's 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 I think like four more miles or something like that. Oh wow! So the overland routes, you know, I didn't know about it last year. I just went the the actual Iditarod Trail route way and followed my GPS track, and um, it actually ended up just taking forever. And then. Um, this year I was like, all right, well, I know that there's this other, other way. And actually more people this year took the other way, like, you know, like people, uh, from Nikolai to McGrath that were traveling in between on snow machines went this way. So I was like, all right, that's a no brainer. It's more packed down and, and it's faster. So that's basically like the only option you have. Otherwise there's just one way from basically Anchorage to, to McGrath. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. So yeah, I'm going to add to our list of skills for world-class bike packers. We got, we got dedication and willpower. I'm going to add confidence too, because I mean, it just sounds like not only do you have to be confident in your physical abilities, your endurance and your strength and preparedness, but like you need to, you need to have serious navigation skills. You need to have, you know, wilderness survival skills and all that. And yeah. And then you got to be confident in those skills and know that you've done all your preparation. Totally. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of common sense, but yeah, there is a lot that, you know, a lot of my experiences lend to, you know, my success for sure. Yeah. So talk a little bit about your setup for this particular race. What kind of bike were you riding? So I was on a salsa cycles muckluck. It's their, it's their more expedition style fat bike it's a it'll hold you know 100 millimeter rims five inch tires and uh, it can you can actually with the alternator dropouts on the on the mucklock you can extend the wheelbase um, which is super super helpful for you know soft conditions and whatnot and so yeah that was that was the bike i was on what tires were you running i was running 45 north dillinger fives studded okay Wow. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the, you were just sinking through a lot of the snow. So even with five inch tires, totally five inch tires, I was probably at two PSI in some of the softest conditions. I I don't really want to go lower than two just because I don't want to burp a tire and have to deal with that out there. So if it's two, I'm going slow enough where I should probably end up walking anyways. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my thought. And I actually had a uh, PSI indicator in my pocket that whole time just checking and, and adding and taking out pressure as needed. Wow. 
Would you have run six inch tires if there were such a thing? Probably. Yeah. I mean, I know that there, they, a lot of companies are coming out with a little bit bigger, bigger rubber right now. And I think I probably could run something slightly larger in my, in the muckluck, mm-hmm. but I've known the Dillingers that I've used them for years, the, you know, the tread pattern and then being able to, to have studs is huge because like I said, frozen swamps, there's tons of ice out there. Yeah. And when you're riding on rivers, you know, that's, it's basically all ice unless, you know, there's a little bit of snow on top, but this year there's a lot of, uh, a lot of ice. Yeah. I would say almost as much ice as last year. Last year had a lot, lot more ice, but this year had plenty of ice. Okay. So how, how much gear did you actually carry with you for the race? It sounds like the checkpoints were pretty well stocked with, hot food and drinks and things like that. And then also, I mean, if you, if you needed to, you could use those as shelters. So did you carry a lot of food or a a full shelter with you too? Yeah. So, you know, you never know what happens out there. You, you, you basically have to prepare for the worst. Right. So as far as, as far as like survival gear, I brought a negative 25 degree sleeping bag and then, you know, a bivy sack and a sleeping pad and essentially I only used that once just on the other side of rainy pass. I was just exhausted. I was like, I was ready to, to lay down and in the snow and and get a few hours of rest. So I did that, which is kind of exciting, you know, being able to survive out there and, and use everything you, you have that you're carrying, Right. you know, you could probably rely on checkpoints and sleeping there. But for me, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to have to get sucked in, like I said before, to those checkpoints. So sleeping sleeping in the middle of nowhere is kind of a cool thing to do. And it definitely makes for, you know, fast, you know, fast unpack and repack because it's so cold. Yeah. And then yeah, so like as far as resupply, I carried a ton of food on my bike, but there are, you know, there are checkpoints along the way that that have plenty of food. And then the the two you have two drop bags. So like you two, three weeks before the race, you have to ship, uh, two big Ziploc bags essentially with, you know, full of whatever type of food you want up to Anchorage. And then the race directors will drop food in the Finger Lake aid station, which is, I think like 150 mile or 130 miles in, and then Roan, which is more or less just beyond the halfway point. So, so you have the food that you kind of want. Otherwise they would have, you know, they would be having to haul in just some random food and they have to, you know, there's no roads up there or anything like that. So they have to, they have to fly everything in. So, so yeah, so that, that's super, super nice. And then as far as just the other gear that I was carrying, so I was carrying my sleeping system, basically in my saddlebag. I had a really small handlebar bag that had essentially just my layers that I could take on and off things that I probably wouldn't use as often, extra buffs, extra gloves, I actually did have like I have some expedition mittens that I had to take out between McG- uh, Nikolai and McGrath because it went down to like negative twenty and Whoa. and so I had basically all my layers on you know my down coat that I had in my frame bag and and my my rain jacket to kind of act as a vapor barrier and hold that moisture in and and then I had my down d- down gloves inside my pogies and then I had and then I like ripped open a bunch of. Uh, uh, hand warmers as well. I carry, carry a bunch of hand warmers. So yeah, I mean, I basically it's a lot of just kind of experience on my packing system, just like what I've used in the past and stuff. 
yeah, I guess that I would say that's probably the most important thing is that the experience as far as my packing and is concerned. Yeah. 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 What, what did the whole thing end up weighing? Did you weigh it before the race? I did of 48 pounds. So, wow. Yeah. So it actually wasn't, you know, it wasn't as bad as it could have been considering, you know, fat bikes are kind of heavy anyways. You got, you know, a lot of rubber on them and just the rims are heavier and everything like that. Yeah. And it's winter. So it's not like, you know, you're just packing tank tops and short shorts. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so as far as like water is concerned too, I, I didn't bring this up, you know, your camelback freezes really quickly if it's just on the outside. So what I, what basically all of us winter ultra riders do is we put it underneath all of our layers and then layer over that. Uh-huh. And so that's what I did for, for this year again. And, and so at least I don't have, you know, a ton of water on my bike because it, it would freeze and it would be dead weight instantly. Yeah. So, so the only way to keep that, keep that, um, uh, liquid in liquid form is to, to keep it on my back. And then I would have to like every, t- every single time I would sip into some water, I'd have to blow back into the, the bladder to make sure that the hose doesn't freeze. Cause that's even, <laughs> right. that's the worst, you know, just yeah. if the hose is frozen. So yeah. Yeah. Just a, a ton of just small things that you, you get from, from experience. Yeah. That's great. Great tips. So Neil, I wanted to ask you about some of the differences between competing in a winter race like the Iditarod and more the like deserty, you know, summer races like the Arizona Trail and the Colorado Trail races. Is do you have a preference for one or the other? Are there unique challenges or things that maybe you're uniquely suited for, you think? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think more recently, I've become more drawn to the winter ultras because there's a lot more unknowns dealing with, you know, negative, negative degree temperatures and snow and just like basically more, you're more on a survival mission than anything else. And that, that's kind of a draw. But at the same time, it's really hard to beat, you know, especially the first 300 miles of the airs on a trail race. Um, it's just beautiful. You're in shorts and a t-shirt. Yeah. It's so I, I mean, my preference right now, it would be winter ultras, but now that we're getting closer to, you know, to summer, uh, obviously I'm super, I'm looking forward to, uh, to the, to the summer events for sure. Yeah. It seems to me, I mean, for me personally, I feel like I would have a harder time with the summer events actually, because, you know, feel like you'd be sweating a lot more. Hydration would be more of an issue than in the winter race. Have you found that to be the case or, or our winter ones is hydration equally important because it's so dry, uh, wherever you're competing? Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Actually, the like the Arizona trail race, you're losing so much moisture through the sweat because it is so hot. Whereas like probably got away with two, three liters, drinking three liters over, 20 hours and 70 miles from, from Rhone to, to Nikolai. So That's, yeah, it yeah, doesn't sound like a lot. Yeah, it's definitely not. So yeah, I, I would say as far as that's concerned, that that's definitely more of a challenge. And obviously, you know, a big difference is the technical level of the trail, you know, the Arizona trail race, you're, you're going over rocks and tight and twisty turns and you're, mm-hmm. you're on a full on mountain bike, single track trail. Whereas, you know, the, the, the Iditarod or any of these winter ultras are typically on groomed roads or, or trails that are packed down for the most part. And so you, you're not really, other than trying to stay on your bike through deep snow, 
you're not really, you know, you, you need balance for that. You're not really um, on too much of a technical trail other than, you know, there are some spots on the Iditarod that are super steep and downhill uphill, but uh, for the most part, for the majority of the trail, it's, it's actually pretty straightforward, pretty easy trail. Yeah. I don't know. You got me starting to think maybe winter bikepacking races are the thing to do. Cause I mean, my other problem is you can, you can always put on more clothes, but if you're hot, there's, there's not much you can do to cool yourself down anymore aside from riding in the buff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and like dumping water on yourself if you have it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. If you can spare it. So, so you live in Crested Butte, Colorado, which, you know, people, people will like save up their whole lives to be able to go and spend like a week there riding their mountain bikes. Are you able to get out and ride much for fun or are you always, you know, loading your bike down with heavy weights and stuff to go for training rides? No. Yeah. I'm all about having fun. I love where I live. You know, I'm definitely pretty lucky to live here. Obviously it's not easy, you know, uh, making it work in a, in a tourist resort town, but we do it. And yeah. when we can, we, you know, when we can go have fun, we go have fun. And so I'm, I hardly ever weigh my bike down other than, you know, maybe two, three weeks in advance. Otherwise, you know, I'm going out for, you know, fun rides and, and, and training rides are still super fun rides. And really all my bikepacking races are fun rides other than, you know, those, those peaks there, you know, those valleys. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super, super lucky. I'm looking outside at Mount Crestview right now and it's still ski season here, but we've kind of had a, a poor winter. So we're going to be, we're going to be riding a single track up here in no time. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you have like a full suspension or a trail bike or all your bikes, you know, more geared for bikepacking? Well, so Salsa is um, a huge partner of mine and obviously, you know, they, they have the adventure by bike bikes scene down. Um, you know, they, they make great, great uh, race bikes and, uh, adventure bikes, but they also make some really fun, some fun trail bikes like, uh, the Salsa Cycles Red Point, which I am lucky enough to, to be getting one this year. So I haven't been on it other than testing it. Um, but yeah, that's a, it's like a 160, uh, 150 rear trail bike and it's going to eat up, eat up the trails around here. It's going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And it's kind of new. Like I've always been on either like a super fast hardtail or, you know, like the salsa spearfish, which is just their like cross country endurance rig. So, uh, this will be a nice change for me this year. And, uh, I'll, I'll definitely be able to enjoy some of these downhills and crest speed a little bit more. Yeah. Nice. So are you able, I mean, does, does this training take up a lot of time? I mean, you, you look at a race and in a race you're riding hundred miles or more in a day. So how do you, how do you even train for that? Does it, is it really time consuming? Do you have to go out for you know, a 90 mile ride to get ready for a bikepacking race? So no, I don't luckily. So I, I, maybe this is my thought process. Everybody's a little different, but I've, I've been doing this for a while. I have, you know, the, the bikepacking form, so to speak, you know, I know, I know what my, my body can handle, um, when I get to these bikepacking races. So really just like putting in, you know, five, six hour days, before, you know, right before a race, those, those are like the most important, like trying to figure out how my body reacts, um, when I need to, you know, start putting, putting, uh, you know, calories in my body. But really what I do is like four rides a week or so, 
and this is kind of in the summer. In the winter, it's really difficult because of the snow here. But in the summer, you know, I'm doing like hour, hour and a half rides. And then I'll do like a weekend ride that's like three, four hours. And then sometimes I'll do like a five, six hour ride. So I'm not like riding my bike a ton. I think the most important thing for these these big long races is to actually have a rested body. So the most important thing for me before a race is to to be getting like eight, nine hours of sleep a night to just ensure that my muscles are recovered. Yeah. And so, I mean, just to be clear, like bikepacking, that's not like your day job, right? Like you don't, you don't spend all your days just riding your bike. So yeah. What, what do you do in the daytime uh, when you're not bikepacking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I work for a company called Irwin Guides and essentially it's, um, it's a guiding company in Crested Butte and we offer, you know, mountain bike, guided mountain bike experiences, overnight mountain bike experiences, mountain bike clinics, maybe potentially a bike packing trip in the future. Now that I'm, I'm working there, um, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> but we also sell like, you know, uh, guided rock climbing trips, fly fishing, cat skiing, backcountry skiing. Uh, and yeah, it's a, it's a fun job. I work, uh, work in the office. Uh, I work with a bunch of good people, a bunch of awesome guides and, uh, yeah, it's a little bit new. It's a new kind of situation for me because I, I now have like, you know, vacation time that I have to use. And so I don't, right. I don't get as much time off as I, as I would like for, um, for these bikepacking trips. So what I have to kind of do now is just focus on some shorter rides. So like, obviously shorter bike packing events, you know, uh, the Iditarod, I'm going to go line up in the Arizona trail race in two weeks. And then, you know, I think the trans North Georgia in, in August. So these are all just kind of weekend rides, but they're still, they're still big undertakings. They're just shorter than the tour divide, shorter than the full Arizona trail race, things like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, your, your story though should at least be encouraging for others who want to get into bikepacking, maybe even not at the competitive level, people who just want to do it because it's, it's really fun and it doesn't take all your time. You can, you can work a regular job and still have plenty of time to do it. And, and you're showing you, you have time to, to dominate at it. So that's really awesome. I do a ton of racing, but I also do a ton of, you know, just overnighters and I kind of just look at the weather and if it's nice out for the weekend, I'll just go out with my wife, Lindsay, and we'll just go for a quick overnighter and enjoy ourselves. Like I love racing, but I think the whole bikepacking thing is, you know, the real, the real, the real takeaway from bikepacking is just like go slow, enjoy your natural surroundings and, and live off your bike. And I love doing that. Yeah, that's great. This summer, you're hosting the second annual Bikepacking Summit in Gunnison in September, I believe. So who is this event geared toward primarily? What's, what's sort of the idea behind the summit? Yeah, so we're, we're hosting the, um, the, our second annual Bikepacking Summit, September 14th through 16th, and it's actually going to be in Gunnison, Colorado. And um, last year, we held it in Golden, which was a great venue. We held it at New Train Brewing Company. But this year, we kind of wanted to make it more of like a destination. Um, and a lot of people, maybe not, maybe a lot of people don't know about Gunnison, but um, it's 30 miles south of Crested Butte. Um, it's kind of our neighboring town in the Gunnison, uh, Gunnison County here. And uh, it's got tons of awesome single track and 
dirt roads and and just endless bike packing options. So we were like, this is a no brainer for us to move it to Gunnison. Obviously it's closer to our home as well. Um, so yeah, we're catering it towards, you know, people that are everybody really, you know, people that are haven't even bike packed yet that are looking to gain the knowledge to kind of take that next step to, to, to get out and do an overnighter, um, all the way to, you know, uh, you know, racers or, people that are touring the the world that want to learn some more or share their knowledge. But yeah, essentially it's just three days of riding, storytelling and, uh, and community building. Yeah, that's cool. Is it part of it uh, industry as well? Are there companies that are going to be involved in showing off products or um, is there, are there like advocacy type things that the bikepacking community is working on or that um, would be part of a summit like that? Yeah, totally. So that's that's the big thing, you know, trail advocacy, land use uh, issues. Um, so we're bringing in Kurt Refsnyder, who is the president of Bikepacking Roots and the founder. He's gonna he's gonna talk about you know the issues that we we've got going on with with the trail advocacies and 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 all of that. And and then you know we're gonna bring in some more people. Hopefully, we're we're obviously still dialing in our presenters and partners and everything, but bring in more people that are privy to those issues, um, in the United States and, and beyond really. Um, and then, yeah, as far as, you know, our partners we're we're, we're definitely keeping it small to start because we want to, we want to make it successful for the future. And so we'll definitely, we'll definitely have, you know, vendors there that will, will be showcasing products. We'll have, bike demos where you can, you know, we'll, we'll have group rides so you can demo a bike for a day. Um, and then before and after, I think the plan is before we're going to do an, uh, before the event, we're going to do an overnighter and it'll be open to, to anybody. And then afterwards, our county commissioner, Jonathan Houck, who, um, who is a super awesome guy, uh, family man, but he's also a bike packer. He has developed a route in the Gunnison County that basically circumnavigates the whole county. Oh wow! Um, so so it connects like Crested Butte, Gunnison, Pitkin, Marble, few other towns, and uh, and I think after the the summit, we're going to go and and kind of tour the tour this route, and it'll probably take you know quite a few days, five six days, but um, it should be a really cool experience and and showcase the beauty of Gunnison uh, Gunnison County. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, one issue I wanted to ask you about is bikes in wilderness. Is that an issue that you see the bikepacking community taking up? Uh, is it is it controversial among bike packers as it is among regular mountain bikers? You know, I don't think so. I think we have we have plenty of personally. You know, I want to bike everywhere, but I understand where people are coming from um, as far as you know keeping wilderness areas bike free. I think we have tons of bike, you know, bikeable terrain already. So I'm not, I, I'm, I'm not one to kind of argue for or against it, but I think that'll definitely come up throughout the weekend. Um, I don't, I don't see why not. And I think personally here in, in, in Gunnison County, there's a ton of wilderness that if we didn't have it, we could make even better loops. But at the same time, I, I, I understand why it's there. Yeah, that's that's a great answer. So, how can people learn more about the Bikepacking Summit or register for it? Yeah, so um, head over to bikepackingsummit.com. Actually, today, uh, which is what we're April or March twenty first, I've got a ton of work to do for 
dialing in presenters and everything like that. I've got a bunch of emails to answer, but we definitely know Kurt Refsnyder is going to be here and uh, a bunch of other trail advocacy people and then and brands and whatnot. Um, but yeah, head over to the website. There's a link to register on, on the homepage. And there's also a contact uh, forum on our website. If you have any questions, definitely feel free to, uh, to hit us up. Awesome. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Neil. This, was, this has been really entertaining, and I, I definitely have learned a lot about bikepacking. So, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, be sure to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace.